I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. Each week, we look at the deep historic trends behind today's news. This week, the story we want to talk about is immigration, one of the great hot-button subjects in British politics. Figures published last week showed net migration to the United Kingdom has reached 600,000, a record high. But the politics of migration to Britain has a long history, and that history is what we want to talk about to explain what is and what isn't new about the politics of immigration today. The Empire Windrush brings to Britain 500 Jamaicans. Many are ex-servicemen who know England. They serve this country well. In Jamaica, they couldn't find work. Citizens of the British Empire coming to the mother country with good intent. Our reporter asks them what they want to do. How have you come to England? To seek a job. And what sort of job do you want? Any type, so long as I get a good pay. Are you an ex-Air Force, aren't you? Yes. Are you going back to the Air Force game? Yes. Some plan to return to Jamaica when conditions improve. I'd like to ask you, please, are you a single man? I am a single man. I'm only my mother that is depending on me. And I'm also an ex-serviceman. And I'm trying to help myself and also help my mom. Their spokesman sings his thanks to Britain. Now, may I ask you your name? Lord Kitchener. Lord Kitchener. Now, I'm told that you are really the king of Calypso singers. Is that right? Yes. Yes. You sing for us? London. Is the place for me? London, this lovely city. You can go to France or America, India, Asia or Australia, but you must come back to London City. That was a clip there from British Pathé about the arrival of HMT Empire Windrush arriving at the port of Tilbury on the 21st of June 1948 to a lot of us in our imaginations is the start of something relatively new in Britain, a kind of politicised immigration. But actually the the story that we're going to discuss today is longer than that. It goes back much further. Windrush, though, is a pivotal moment still, collectively in the sort of narrative of immigration. So it's important that we focus on it. And a lot of it is not talked about. So we think about the nice welcome there and everything seems friendly. But if you 
think about what's going on behind the scenes, it's a very different story. And this is Labour government at the time of Clement Attlee, a great hero to many. And he actually privately t- described this as an incursion. And a meeting of his government's economic committee discussed whether it might be possible to divert the ship to East Africa and make its passengers pick peanuts over there. Eleven Labour MPs described it as an influx of coloured people that would impair the harmony, strength and cohesion of our public and social life and cause discord and unhappiness among all concerned. So this is pretty grim stuff. But the colonial secretary at the time, Arthur Creech Jones, said look, there's not anything that the government can do about this because they are British subjects. And this is a crucial point. They are British subjects and they had the right to come to Britain as anybody did in the British Empire at the time. He said, these people have British passports and must be allowed in. There's nothing to worry about because they won't last one winter in England. But obviously they did, Helen. That moment has entered our collective national imagination and there is this as you say really grim thing that's going on behind the scenes to understand in terms of the long history both of migration into Britain and in terms of the politics of that and its relationship to questions of citizenship we really I think need to go back to the first piece of legislation that was passed that restricted Mm, entry into Britain and that was passed in 1905 by the Conservative government after a Royal Commission had been set up in 1902 on what was called alien immigration. And the central distinction that this legislation rested on was that between an alien and a British subject. Yeah. And if people were subject of the British crown, and that meant United Kingdom's uh, empire, then they were British subjects in some sense that they owed a personal allegiance to the crown and that was the basis of any political rights that they had yeah. uh, in Britain and everybody else was an alien. This was an attempt, the 1905 Act, to restrict the entry into Britain really of one specific group of people being called aliens that were Jews coming from Russia after the pogroms in Russia at the start of the 20th century. Now, it's a complicated Act in that you could argue that it establishes for the first time or formalises a legal right to asylum. Yes, it does, yeah. Because it was those who were deemed, quote, undesirable and destitute aliens who were being shut out. And anybody that could show that their life was in danger effectively thereafter had a, a right to come. But in terms of how we then think about the history of this through the 20th century is important to see that this was a piece of legislation directed at aliens and in this category of British subject there was effectively the right of entry to everybody within the empire when the Windrush boat is arriving nothing's actually changing in terms of the the legal environment for migration from British subjects into this country and even the piece of legislation that was passed a a few weeks later the the Nationality Act of 1948 which is going to be very important in understanding the story that we're going to try to tell that didn't actually also change anything in regard to migration into this country in terms of the legal framework for it I mean by that this idea of aliens being those who are not British subjects and British subjects being anyone born on the territory of the British Empire that at that point in when we're talking now 1905 existed looking at the 1905 Aliens Act 
what is remarkable about it is how light touch it is. I certainly didn't really appreciate how liberal immigration rules were before this. There was no presumption that you had to register. There was a presumption that you could come in. There was nothing stopping anyone from coming into the UK before this act. There had been various bits of ad hoc immigration restriction during wartime, during the Napoleonic Wars, and there would be during the First World War. But outside of wartime, the assumption was you could move. That was fine. There was no passports. There was no duty to register with the Home Secretary, anything like that. I've got a quote here from Winston Churchill, who was opposing the 1905 bill, stating that the bill would appear to insular prejudice against foreigners, to racial prejudice against Jews, and to labour prejudice against competition. And that was a big thing for him, he, the idea of free market competition. And he said he was in favour of the old, tolerant and generous practice of free entry and asylum to which this country has so long adhered and from which it has so greatly gained. I mean, it's quite interesting to read those words and to think about how things have changed and our assumptions about the right to entry or not. I think as well, just as a last point on this before we turn back to the 1948 Act, is that a lot of the political pressures against migration into Britain, and I'm explicitly mean now Britain and not the United Kingdom in the second half of the 19th century, had been manifested in local politics in relation to Irish migration into Britain. And given that Ireland was part of the Union of the United Kingdom and Great Britain, so it was part of the political union, it would be unthinkable, I think, at national level to have a political response to that, even though someone like Joseph Chamberlain probably did try to make that, I think, part of his... of his. It's funny, actually, Helen, if you look at the 1905 Act, who were really stopping from coming into the country are the poor. Yeah. So Jewish people who are trying to flee pogroms in the east of Europe and the poor. So it only applied to those who arrived in what was called steerage class in a ship carrying more than 20 passengers. If you were middle class, you're allowed in. There's no checks. You don't have to do anything. You, in you come. So that's the watershed moment, 1905, that changes how we deal with immigration all the way up really till 1948. And the arrival of the Windrush immigrants from the Caribbean and weeks later, the crucial moment, which is the passage of the 1948 British Nationality Act. And this, I think, changes everything and nothing at the same time in that it still assumes that if you are a British subject, you have the right to move to the UK. You can, So it doesn't change the fact, it doesn't restrict anything, and it doesn't make anything easier for those from the Caribbean or India or Pakistan or anywhere else in the British Empire or Commonwealth at the time to come to Britain. But it's responding, isn't it, Helen, to a change that's happening at elsewhere in the Commonwealth, particularly in Canada. Absolutely. There's a very clear parallel, I think, going back to what we were talking about in our very first episode about the monarchy and the way in which the Commonwealth, as we know it, has in some sense to be invented to deal with the fact that India wanted to become a republic. And the whole Nationality Act of 1948 and the creation of this category of citizen of the United Kingdom and colonies has to be done because the Canadians no longer want to accept that British subject suffices. They want their own category of citizenship, Canadian citizenship. And then the fact that that, that Canadians will still be British subjects is derived from their Canadian citizenship. So we essentially 
come up with our citizenship legislation, which is not only going to serve as the basis of citizenship all the way until the 1980s, but is going really to shape the politics of migration into Britain in terms of the legal framework for it and the options that governments have when they want more restrictive legislation, because we're back to dealing with simultaneously the legacy of empire, the creation of the Commonwealth, and the fact that we don't really want to lose any of these things, even though we're supposedly adjusting to a post-imperial world and the Crown's position in relation to it, because we're still holding on to this idea that we're British subjects of the Crown. Yeah, it's it's a kind of fiction that we're creating, that, that the world hasn't changed, but it has changed, and it's changing to us in a way. Other people are changing it for us, and well, then we are responding to it. And I think we should just quickly say what happens then. So we create this idea of British subjecthood that it's slightly different in that if you are a citizen of any country in the British Commonwealth, you immediately become a British subject. That's the link. Except also for India and Pakistan, people can be called citizens of the Commonwealth. Citizens of the Because obviously they don't want to be called British subjects. But in the law, it says that if you're a citizen of the Commonwealth and a British subject, is the same thing. You get the same rights. So we're not changing anything, but the world is changing and we haven't changed with it. This becomes this kind of totemic piece of legislation for people like Enoch Powell in the years to come that we're going to discuss who blame it and for allowing free movement essentially into the UK. And that interpretation is nonsense though, because as you've already said, it it doesn't actually change anything in, in relation to migration at all. And I think what's really interesting in this respect is this elaborate legal framework around UK citizenship, which is explicitly tied to the colonies, to the empires, because it's citizens, you're a citizen of the UK colonies. And this is all done without any thought whatsoever about (laughs) what this is going to mean in the context of a post-war world, a post-imperial world, what are going to be the labour shortages in various sectors in the in the UK economy in the 1950s. And I think it's reflective of the fact that Labour government, obviously in this respect it wouldn't have been any different if it, was the, if it had been a, a Conservative government, just thinks about the issue entirely in terms of foreign policy. Yeah. It, it doesn't think through what the migration implications of this might be in terms of likely popularity or not of migration amongst voters, it says what matters is preserving the empire, preserving yeah. the Commonwealth and everything else and the domestic politics side of it is entirely subordinate well, to I guess that. They, they would think nothing's actually changing. This hasn't been an issue really in British politics up until then. So why would it be an issue? Because nothing's changed. That's I assume that's how they would think if they thought about it at all. But at the same time, I think there is a tension there because they're yeah. committing as a goal of government to full employment. Yeah. And that is the context in which various bits of the public sector, including the National Health Service, Transport for London, are going to look to the Caribbean and to India for people yeah. to come and fill labour shortages. We can understand, in a way, if we're telling this as a historical story, all the difficulties that the politicians get into in the 1960s when they're confronted with this as a problem of migration to Britain being pretty domestically unpopular when they just haven't thought in these yeah, terms. They haven't. After this act comes in, migration from the Caribbean isn't very high. You're talking about a few thousand. It starts to increase in the mid-50s and then into the 60s. So when Enoch Powell actually enters government in 61, immigration is running at about 135,000 a year at that point. 
and it's become a political issue. You've got a number of things that are happening in the world. So you've had the winds of change. You're, you're getting the independence of African colonies, Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya. So East African colonies are becoming independent and their governments are introducing Africanization policies. This causes a problem which people refer to as the sort of detritus of empire, which is a kind of appalling phrase. But it essentially means East African Asians who are being denied citizenship of their new states, of these new states that are independent, but have British subjecthood. So they have a, a right to move to Britain. And that starts to happen in the 60s. And then you start to get the political response in the 60s from the British government. And we should say from the outset, just as it was an issue with the Attlee government and then the Churchill government, it was a race problem for the government. They essentially were bothered because it was different races to other immigration. There was no concern about Australian or Canadian or New Zealand immigration. The problem for the government, as they saw it, was because these people were not white. And so you start to get different acts. We're going to talk about the 62 Act, Helen, and the 68 mm. Act. These are the Commonwealth Immigration Acts, and these are absolutely crucial in this story. They are. And I think that in order to see why these bits of legislation cause the governments, both Conservative and Labour, so much difficulty, is that we have to go back to the 48 Act, because given that the citizenship apparatus had been concerned, if they wanted to start saying essentially that we want some people yeah. to be able to come, i.e. the people from white Commonwealth countries, but we're not keen on people who don't have white skin coming from Commonwealth countries, they don't have a citizenship means of making that distinction. No, there's no legal means to... to... So then they've got to concoct ways of doing what they're trying to do, which is essentially have racialized migration yeah. law without being willing to abandon the imperial notion of citizenship that they've set up in um, 1948. And they're explicit about this. Rab Butler says the great merit of his 62 Commonwealth Immigrants Act was that it could be presented as non-discriminatory, but in reality, its restrictive effect is intended to and would in fact operate on coloured people almost exclusively. Yeah, a huge great school in opposing the legislation called it cruel and brutal anti-colour legislation. What's notable, though, is is that Labour opposed the legislation. Yeah. And then when they were in power, so having won the 1964 election, think back to what we were talking about in the last episode, they renewed the Act because it actually had to be renewed to continue. They reduced the effectively the quotas for the numbers of people who could come on work permits, which was the way in which the legislation effectively worked. And the reason why that they did so was because they had quite a scare from their point of view in the 1964 election. There was this one particular constituency, Smethwick, in Birmingham, where a Conservative candidate who basically run a fairly racist campaign in that constituency yeah. completely defied the national swing, which obviously was from Conservatives to Labour and achieved a swing in the other direction. Well, Birmingham would become a, a, a really key point in this. We should just say this act, what it does, and it's very similar to what the, the next act does, the way it is able to discriminate really is that it says it's not just about being a, a British subject. The mechanism is the issuing authority of your passport. So if you've got your passport in a colony or a Commonwealth country, 
you weren't allowed in. But if you got it in the UK, you were allowed in. So it's really just a technical way of stopping immigration from the Commonwealth. And what it does is it divides the Commonwealth, doesn't it? Because previously we'd had this idea of this great family of nations and British subjecthood that united it all. And now it's weird to say, say, no, we don't want that. No, it's entirely racialising the Commonwealth where migration is concerned. The difficulty then that the Labour government gets into in 1968, which produces the second pieces of this legislation, is that between the 62 Act in 1968, Kenya had become an independent state. Yeah. And the Indian population in Kenya, which had obviously been there a long time, had been given a choice effectively about whether to take, at least initial choice about whether to take Kenyan citizenship or retain UK and colonies citizenship. When they were confronted by the Kenyan government with essentially having to apply for an entry certificate just to remain in the country, even if they'd been born there, they very understandably wanted to take use of their citizenship of the UK and colonies, which had not been restricted under the 1962 Act. So we clamped down even further in 68, and this now is under a Labour government, and Callaghan has replaced the very liberal Roy Jenkins as Home Secretary, and he forces through a piece of legislation in record time, I think it's about two weeks, and he tightens it further by saying, the key thing now is you have to have a parent or a grandparent born in the UK. So this is an additional criteria to where your passport is issued. So effectively, with the 62 and 68 Acts, we have really just reduce the ability to get into the UK for, if you're born in the Commonwealth. I think it's worse than that, though, because what we did in the 1968 Act was to leave those Asian Kenyans stateless because yeah. they weren't in that didn't have- position to take Kenyan citizenship. They weren't welcome to Kenyan citizenship. What they had was to be a citizen of the UK and colonies. They were as much a, a British citizen in that respect yeah. as I was the year I was born the year before and then the legislation effectively removed them um, from that citizenship and left them stateless and that is why actually it was challenged under the European Convention of Human Rights because it's against international law actually to right. leave people stateless as I understand it at least that Callahan was told all this when he was passing the legislation his argument is domestic public opinion will not tolerate more immigration and then it must stop however unpalatable that is and he tried to make an argument out of it of saying that what we will do is we want to have as he called it like racial harmony we'll pass race relations legislation for Britain as it was with people who had already exercised their right to come but he was trying to say no further and trying to suggest that public opinion was such that unless there was a line drawn then the whole thing was going to become incredibly difficult and we're going to see how difficult it comes in the the second part of this episode at blackpool the opposition leader mr heath faced a thrash out of tory policy at the conservative party conference one of the big questions however was how big a threat was mr enoch powell only the conference would tell mr powell the sacked shadow minister got a warm welcome from his many supporters there were also boos from others there's 2,026 signatures here to say that Mr Enoch's right, that we have the right to say who we like and who we don't like. This is not a racial problem. All we say is that we've got enough immigrants into the country, 
and that no more should be allowed in. When he eventually addressed the conference, he stuck firmly to his line that immigrants were a threat to the character of England and said they should be encouraged to go home. So that was a news clip of the Cory Party conference in Blackpool following Enoch Powell's famous or infamous, I should say, Rivers of Blood speech in 1968. A few things that are interesting now historically about this is Powell's speech actually came after Callaghan's 1968 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, which had effectively introduced Powellite legislation. Powell had got almost what he wanted in the 60s, in the 62 and 68 Act. But what he wanted was much further than that. He wanted repatriation of those who had already arrived. And his speech was so inflammatory at the time that he was immediately sacked by the Conservative leader, Edward Heath. We often overlook that this was a live issue in the Conservative Party up until the, the 1970 election, which Heath would win. If Heath hadn't won that, Powell was well-placed to win the Conservative Party leadership. That is a key moment in British politics. The interesting thing then is that Powell is defeated in 70. He's not going to become Conservative Party leader. But we enter into a period, really, of consensus, Helen, about immigration, in that we have had these acts in the 60s that have restricted immigration from the Commonwealth, and they wouldn't be repealed. Some academics talk about this period that really into the 90s is a period of zero immigration. Now, that's not right. There, there evidently is immigration at this time, but there is a political consensus. And following Powell's speech, a kind of understanding that politicizing race is not acceptable. What Powell sin was in terms of party politics of this was that he attacked the very idea of multi-ethnic British citizenship. Yeah. And more than happy to have people deported. And he did not accept the parameters that had effectively been put down by the Labour government's approach, which was that we pass racial relations legislation for supposed domestic harmony and we restrict new migration. I think it's also important to say that the Conservative Party at that moment in 1968 was divided both ways because actually some people in the Conservative Party led by Ian McLeod were actually very emphatically opposed to the legislation that Callaghan had. I think though that what we can see when the Conservatives are back in power after 1970 is that the issue is going to get really quite complicated again because the whole importance of the Commonwealth is about to diminish. Yeah. And so, in one sense, politicians are still dealing with Commonwealth migration. And at the same time, they're dealing with the fact that they want to leave the Commonwealth behind, particularly Heath himself, and turn to European community membership. And that has migration implications that are going to come with it as well. The interesting thing about the 70s is that they have really ended with some kind of power light legislation that stays in place and that's something that's quite difficult now to go back and think about that that think about that as a conclusion to 
his speech and all of the rows in, in the 60s, Powell would say in the Conservative Party's 1970 manifesto, it had clauses about repatriation. Like We forget this, but Heath had included it. And in fact, there would be the 1971 Immigration Act that I think we're going to turn to now, Helen, has a clause in there about this. It, it ends up being a much more benign, thank God, clause, which is essentially if anybody wants to return to land that they've come from, the government will give them some money. There's no forced element, but it's still there. It's like a sort of shadow of the Powerlite policy that exists in law, which I think is is extraordinary to think about now. And the other thing with Powell is that he is reflecting the total contradictions in Britain's attitude to the Commonwealth. He himself had been the biggest supporter of the idea of a global British subjecthood and loyalty to the crown and had opposed it being broken up in 48. And then faced with what that actually meant, he revealed that it wasn't what he supported and empire loyalists and the like in the House of Commons didn't support that in practice. They didn't believe in it. They believed that there was differences within the idea of a British subjecthood. And I think, in a sense, the whole country had revealed the sham that ever existed because they got rid of it at the first chance. Yeah, I think though there's one interesting thing about Heath in this respect that we should bring in because I think he does still want to draw a sharp line between what power represents and what he's wanting to do in power. And that is when there's the potential for a replay of what Callaghan did in response to the crisis in Kenya over Uganda, Idi Amin is in power. He says that the Ugandan Asians are entitled to keep their UK colonies' citizenship and he's willing to take the political hit for that. It's not really clear, actually, there is that much of a political hit, despite the fact of the way in which Callaghan presented it in 1968 as there's no possible alternative to what I'm doing because domestic opinion won't tolerate it. Actually, it does. It, it, it does. Whatever political problems Heath has in 1972, I'm not really sure that they come from that point. But I think that what we should get onto is the way in which the 1971 Act, which was this third in the series of restrictions on Commonwealth migration on a racialized basis, then interacted with the fact that Britain was joining the European community. And indeed, the royal assent to that 1971 legislation came on the day... It's, ama- it's an amazing coincidence, that, this. Yeah. That, ...that we joined the European community on the 1st of January 1973. Such a neat distinction, isn't it, between the Commonwealth, that, that period of time when we were a Commonwealth or imperial power and how we rejected that or, and had <laughs> many other countries rejected it for us. And then we go into our European period that starts in the 1st of January 1973, the day this Immigration Act, Heath's Immigration Act, comes into into force and the day we enter the EEC. Yeah, obviously entering the European community opens up a new potential migration issue because since at least probably legally since probably 1968, then any person in a European community member state, any citizen of a European community member state had the same rights to employment as any national in a member state. I do think that part of the motivation for the 1971 legislation is the fact that 
as there is new potential for migration and which there will be no possibility of legal restriction on because the rules about that are bound up with accepting the Treaty yeah. of Rome that the politicians think or the Conservative government thinks that there will be another increase in migration unless there's tighter rules on the Commonwealth. Now, that isn't really the case in practice because the 1970s are not a good decade, as we know, for the yeah. for the British economy. But that issue, which is really going to matter in the 2000s, the origins of, I think, of it lie there because of the fact that in joining the European community, then a whole set of laws that are not passed by the British Parliament come into play where migration is. Do you think it was purposeful then? My sense is that there was like a total disregard. It was a little bit like 1948 in that they just really didn't think about the consequences of immigration. There's no discussion about it. But you think it's more that they see a problem of what labour shortages and they think that this would help? I think that it's not so much that. I think that they do understand the implications of joining the European community in this respect. Remember that Heath might have talked when he was talking to voters about this not being a significant shift. It was just joining a trade agreement. He knew that there was much more to becoming a member of the European community than that. But I think that this point is, it is an important juncture because we brought the European community question into play. And then if we think about Thatcher, who was someone who was willing to try to make political capital out of the unpopularity of migration into Britain. She used it, I think, to some extent in the 1979 election. But her government makes this really radical change on the citizenship issue and really leaves imperial citizenship behind, gets rid of this idea... For good. Yeah, that we're the citizens of the UK and UK um, colonies and creates rules about British national citizenship. Now, they can't entirely escape the imperial legacy because... British overseas citizenship comes into it. That's quite important in terms of Hong Kong. But that imperial citizenship, which effectively is what the Attlee government had created for our citizenship, tied still to this notion of like British subject, that ends with Thatcher. You you can't think of Thatcher really or understand her properly if you don't also think of her relationship to Enoch Powell, who she essentially admired. And she was a, a moderate power light. When Heath canvassed the shadow cabinet after the Rivers of Blood speech, she was one of the few who said to not sack him. And she then comes in, She's or she pushes at the consensus, doesn't she? The consensus is, that has emerged politically that we've reached a point where everybody can a- agree on. She challenges this when there's the, the crisis of the Vietnamese boat people, as they're called, in the early 80s. Thatcher is resisting it, resisting taking what we would now think of as quite a low quota that the UN had asked of, of 10,000 spread over three years. She had resisted this and she had said that she had far less objection to refugees such as Rhodesians, Poles and Hungarians since they could be more easily assimilated into British society. In the end, she did take them. This is a very different instinct to Heath's when he faced a similar political challenge and I think was quite morally brave. Yeah, I think the thing we should perhaps finish on in terms of summing up where we got to with Thatcher is that we've seen the end of the imperial citizenship notion. We've still got a strongly racialized practices where migration from Commonwealth countries 
is concerned. Yeah. And there's going to be a big change with the Maastricht Treaty in the 1990s because that's going to create EU citizenship. Yeah. And it moves from the right to take up employment to a freedom of movement that includes residents. And this is really what's going to change British politics, not immediately, quite the contrary, but it's going to change British politics from the, particularly I would say from 2004. And it's at that point that we're going to take the story up after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. We need a few reminders of what can happen when the politics of immigration gets out of hand. Those who warned of disaster back in the 1960s and 1970s, if migration was not stopped, who said Britain would never accept or be a multiracial society, have been proved comprehensively wrong. But we cannot simply dismiss any concern about immigration as racism. There are real, not imagined abuses of the system. Some immigration procedures have clearly been at fault. Some rules introduced for entirely legitimate reasons have been subject to systematic, often criminal fraud. The overwhelming majority migrate in and indeed often out of Britain fairly and in accordance with the rules. But there are areas of abuse, and we can and should deal with them. Where necessary, we will tighten the immigration system. Where there are abuses, we will deal with them. We will neither be fortress Britain, nor will we be an open house. That was Tony Blair there speaking in the early 2000s, before he takes his big decision not to impose transitional controls on the migration into Britain from those new Eastern European countries that had joined the European Union in 2004, really taking a kind of classically Blairite third way position, casting back to Enoch Powell without referring to him by name uh, and saying his sort of vision of doom had been proved comprehensively wrong, but then saying that there were legitimate concerns about immigration. We need to paint the, the picture at the time and what had happened is that Blair had come in 1997 and had liberalised the system even before his 2004 decision. He had liberalised work permits, had campaigned to get more international students into Britain, invented new visa types like the Innovator Visa and the Highly Skilled Migrant Programme. So this had been a kind of marketization, I think, of migration. It was a very different subject to to what we were talking about in the 60s where it was racialized this wasn't race this was we were now talking about european migration largely the significant thing about tony blair is 
his liberalization of the immigration regime and then his decision in 2004 really reopens immigration as a political hot-button issue, I think, where it hadn't been from the 70s up until then, really. I think what's interesting about Blair, Tom, is that he starts with this relatively liberal attitude within the existing legal framework yeah. in New Labour's first term in office. There is a quite significant increase in migration quite quickly. I think it goes up quite considerably in 1998. But his whole framing of the issue in the kind of way that we just heard him talk about is really inadequate for dealing with what it means to be in the European Union at the point in 2004 when eight, not just East European, but primarily East European countries with lower per capita income come into the European Union. And he's saying, look, we want to have rules, we want to implement those rules. But actually, European Union membership by that point means that the British state can't control what the rules are. It's a little bit like 48, isn't it? We had a citizenship that was outside of Britain then of sorts called yeah. call it subjecthood and now we have a citizenship that's beyond Britain again. But it isn't just that it's not under British democratic control but I think that parallel in a way is is that the Labour government doesn't have any idea whatsoever about what the implications of that might be when they decide that there won't be transition arrangements for the Eastern European countries and remember that only I think it's two other European two other, yeah. European Union members have no transition arrangements Germany by contrast has transition arrangements until 2011 the working assumption is that not that many people will come yeah. from Poland and other Eastern European countries and interestingly in the Treasury you hear the argument and I don't think this is quite really made before of saying that if people do come that's quite a good thing for anti-inflationary yeah. reasons that this is the language that they're willing to use, that in some sense, Britain outside monetary union and having a little bit more, what's the word of putting it, latitude in monetary policy than other um, European Union countries do needs something to act as an anti-inflationary discipline and that in a way, migration is taken to be it. But even on that basis, they still don't think that they're going to be inviting a political problem for themselves because of the really quite sharp increase in migration that then ensues. But by the 2005 election, I think we can see that the migration issue starts to cause Labour serious difficulties. And at that point, the Conservatives, I think, really break quite sharply with the fact that the main parties had been roughly the same space. Yeah, A little bit of argument around the edges, perhaps. But the Conservatives under Michael Howard in 2005, I'd say they tried to make migration the first issue that they're trying to win votes for Labour on. And in that election, as we know, Labour's share of the vote falls to 35%. Obviously, Labour still loses seats, but still has a, yeah. a healthy This is majority. the thinking what I'm thinking or what mm. we're thinking posters that were the sort of mm. probably the first example of, or the first example I can remember of this, this idea of the dog whistle poster. They're not saying what they're thinking, but we know what they're saying. This is a period, actually, I suppose it's an open question, technocratic management of immigration so we've had these periods in the past of very political and thinking about it as either a race question there wasn't a notion of net immigration like an idea of a correct number 
it's a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand. This is the period where supporters think about it in economic terms, about it being good for inflation and good for the economy and, and all of those things. And the critics then start working up a policy response that is technocratic in nature as well, in that they say it's not a question of race or, or anything like that. It's a question of numbers. And this becomes an idea that then dominates British politics for a while. That the numbers language had been there in the 1960s. I think, though, that what we see from 2004 onwards and most emphatically in 2010 is that we have a Conservative Party. Labour itself would go on to replicate this in 2015, but it's certainly led by the Conservative Party that starts to talk the language of numbers. Mm. Cameron makes his promise in 2010 that numbers would be in the tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Yeah. It's a completely incoherent promise to make because yeah. the nature of European Union membership means that the British government can't control migration from the rest of the European Union into Britain. The only thing that they can control is continuing it migration from the Commonwealth. But that isn't, to use their language of numbers, where yeah. people are coming from um, by 2008. And I think a lot of the mess that Cameron gets into in handling the European Union question comes from that when he promises in 2010 something in the manifesto. I think it probably does play some part in the Conservatives' victory in 2010, but it's a completely empty promise because the British government cannot control migration from the European Union. It's a constitutional question within the European Union. And then when He's trying to renegotiate the terms of Britain's membership of the European Union in 2015, early 2016, before holding the the referendum. He's asking for concessions as he sees it from Angela Merkel in particular, who he thinks is obviously the key to some move from the EU that she can't possibly yeah. give. So we've got this... Citizenship means something or it doesn't. Yeah, and he he wants democratic politics of migration in circumstances when it's, it's not possible. It's a cake and eat it, right? <laughs> it's the first cake and eat it. Yeah. This is the reality. We had replaced one citizenship effectively with another, and then we were railing against the consequences of that reality. And we tried loads of different things. You go back and have a look at the different pieces of legislation that we brought in. We brought in 2008, it's the first points-based immigration system that's brought in under the Labour Party. Of course, this actually only means points for those outside of the European Union. And immigration lawyers will tell you they get very angry about the idea that we still have a points-based system because we apparently we just don't have. We did have in 2008 where you could add various different points to, and, and once you got a certain number, you could get in. But Theresa May scrapped that in 2012. It's still called that, but it's really a criteria system. If you pass this criteria, you get in. But again, it doesn't apply to those from the European Union who have European citizenship. And well, at least it didn't pass tense because we've obviously... Oh, yeah. We've <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've... And so you've got this continuity there of the, the 2008, 2012, and then we get to Brexit, which is a large part of this question is... Because I remember Cameron's negotiations about the terms of Britain's membership. And they ended up being about, the, remember, the emergency break that he could pull because he gave up on the idea of changing the nature of European citizenship because there was no way Merkel was going to allow him to do that or anybody was going to allow him to do that. And then it became about, can you pull a break 
unilaterally to give yourself some level of control. And he did actually get something. I think the only thing that he got really was in relation to the question of child benefit by people coming because it's a fundamental principle of being in the European Union of treaty law that the freedom of movement applies across the European Union. Obviously, there was a period when exceptions were made, but that ran from 2004 to 2011. And after that, that route was finished and Britain had not gone... We'd not chosen. We'd not chosen that. I think what is striking, though, in just in the build-up to Brexit is both that this wasn't actually territory that Cameron began his desire or began his move, perhaps would be a better way of putting it, to renegotiate the terms of British entry. He wanted to make that about the city's position. He came to, when he made the Bloomberg speech for us, saying that under a majority Conservative government there would be a referendum, migration wasn't part of that. It came later as UKIP was rising in the opinion polls. But I think it's also notable that the Labour Party in 2015 really tried to say, look, we're just as tough about migration as the Conservatives. Remember those mugs that had (laughs) the Labour's policy commitments on. But that was just as much of a position that was hollow as the Conservatives' position was. So we had our parties making promises in 2010, 2015 that didn't make any sense within the EU's legal and constitutional order. And I think what's interesting now since we've left is this perhaps the really for the first time there is a a space in which there is democratic politics on a entirely national basis yeah, yeah. when you add in the change of about national citizenship from the 80s over this question and so now the politicians are actually in that sense democratically accountable yeah and they are also in a position where they can't blame anybody else anything else yeah for the decisions that they make for the first time i think that we're in a position in this in british politics where migration is a straightforwardly national democratic political debate yeah tied to national citizenship without any constraint on how politicians deal with the question of either from imperial citizenship or from eu citizenship in that sense the politicians it's their responsibility now and they can make deciding migration policy part of democratic politics and they make promises they can't hide behind an external yeah. set of rules or indeed their own rules in regard to citizenship and say, oh, this is constraining us. So it's for them to decide what levels of migration they want to encourage into Britain and they're going to do that, we can see, on the basis of the economy. So that even though... The Conservatives Party is supposedly a party that's in favour of lower migration. Actually, if you look at the decisions that have been made in terms of who will be given work visas, they are in the direction of encouraging more migration. Thinking about it as you were speaking there, Hellenic, I think about 75-year story of retreat back into a simple national citizenship from this imperial citizenship, commonwealth, British subjecthood, then European citizenship, and now all the way back just to a straightforward citizenship. And as you say, no excuses. And what is the first thing that we've done? We took Theresa May's 2012 immigration system and we basically applied it to Europeans as well. That's essentially what's happened. And then we did something else in that we took that system 
I applied it to the whole world and then liberalized it. It's slightly easier to come to the UK for those who are outside of Europe than it was previously. And it's slightly harder for those inside Europe. And the net result has been what we have today, which is net migration of 600,000. We should caveat that, of course, that there are two major events. And again, this is a, a story that goes back since the Second World War of events that happen in the world that the governments have to respond to. It's so they're outside of other considerations. We talked about the boat people and we talked about Kenya and Uganda and all of these crises that emerge. And we have occasionally responded well and occasionally responded very badly. And today we obviously have the two big issues were Ukraine and Hong Kong. And interestingly, we've responded to both far more liberally than we did in the period in which there was this consensus on migration from the 70s until the sort of late 90s. The numbers are far larger. If you again go back to Thatcher and the uh, Vietnamese question, that was 10,000 over three years. I think roughly speaking, the Ukrainian and Hong Kong immigration is around 300,000 in a year, which is obviously a huge number. And then you have refugees and immigration on top of that. So I was speaking to an immigration lawyer about this and he said, look, it's just a plain fact that this is unprecedentedly high numbers coming to the UK. And it really has been since the turn of the century. I still think, though, the crucial point is, is that British politicians in government are going to decide how to deal with the contingencies of world events. And they're going to decide how to respond to the economic problems that Britain has. And they're going to have to keep trying to think about those things at the same time as they're thinking about this as an electoral issue. And I, I think the question is going to be over the next few years, how much actual consensus is there going to be between the political Will we parties? rebuild a consensus? We re yeah, yeah. And that there will be an agreement again in a way not to let this issue be so divisive. On the other hand, I think it's going to be, that's not going to be a straightforward thing to do because we're living in a world where migration is pretty central. I'm not just talking about like Britain yeah. now, but climate change, for instance, is going to probably, almost certainly perhaps, yeah. increase migration in years to come. And there's a whole set of questions in terms of, that are also difficult in British politics, like, building houses. And I think in that sense, without there being an ability of the politicians to forge a consensus among citizens as well as amongst between the, the two parties, we are still going to be living British politics in which migration is a contested issue. And on that, I think we'll leave that episode. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. Thanks for listening to These Times and to all of you who have helped put the show in the top 10 most listened to news podcasts in the UK. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, here comes the usual plea to subscribe, share with your family and friends, leave a review or just shout about it from the rooftops. If you have any questions, please do get in touch with us. You can email us at thesetimes at unheard.com or tweet us at these times pod capital t for these capital t for times capital p for pod and we'll try to answer your questions in a future episode
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com